exactly Lee Chi I'm so popular. Last week with the wonderful Divas of Thought Topics, we discussed the photography of Jean-Paul Good and Azalea Banks's Broke with Expensive Taste. Um, this week we're continuing the trend of my interest in uh, mid-2010s art, pop, music uh, with the fantastic record Nighttime My Time by Sky Ferreira and David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. And I'm joined by a really special guest tonight, someone who I've become very dear friends with over the last few hours of our internet time together. Who are you? I am Sam, Samantha. Um, you may know me on Twitter, uh, if you're one of my like 20 followers, as Manth Online, um, which is meant to be read in the uh, Betty Elms voice as Manth Online. Manth Online? But, um, Manth Online, what a thing. Um, but yeah, I, uh, who am I? I'm a girl. Um, I'm a girl first, a tranny second, an American third. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I go to a liberal arts school and I'm rearing to go. A huge I'm So Popular fan. Welcome. What are you doing? Um, I am sitting here. I'm deconstructing our uh, Marathon Sirens episode, um, thinking about my character test results, thinking about my 22-minute death march of a story, uh, and um, thinking about the world and the human condition. Beautiful. Um, Which is to say, if you're not listening to the Sirens Patreon show, you're not even getting 1% of the whole story. So much essential context for this episode was established there. Um, Literally a 22-minute beautiful monologue of ultimate storytelling of the transgender heart um, who is interested in art plus uh, disaster, vomiting thongs, uh, and very revealing character personality tests. But uh, I also have to ask you, why do you follow me? Why do I follow you? Um, Well, the true origin story is I am, I was a big red scare girl um, in the peak of the pandemic. I started making art seriously. I started painting um, and I had been like an artsy kid, but I was not an artist by any means stretch of the imagination. I just majored in art history and I was interested in it. And I started painting and I got into listening to podcasts because unlike YouTube videos or other like background noise sources, you could flip between like reference images and like still have it on um, Mm -hmm. without turning off. And so I got into Red Scare. And then I was spending last summer doing a bunch of art and listening to podcasts constantly. And I was really getting tired of Red Scare. And so I got on a plane to go on a little trip and I was going to scout some new material um, <laughs> for my for my artistic endeavors. And what did I discover? But um, a wonderful little podcast um, that was touted as hosted by an American drag queen in Japan. Um, some of my favorite words all stitched together in a sentence. So I thought I'll give this a go. And um, I discovered one of my favorite podcasts, certainly my favorite art critic on the market. Um, So happy to be here. Seriously, actually, it's it's such an honor and such a a very earnest way um, to be getting to discuss two of the most integral parts of my being with you. And um, yeah, I was 
entranced with the narrative thrust of I'm so popular and um, noticing that I could almost predict the topics you would talk about because I knew the things I'd already liked and I knew we had such a match in tastes that I uh, I knew there was certainly a Twin Peaks episode and I scrolled up there was or a uh, episode on Britney Spears etc. That's exactly how I felt the first time going through the Perfume Nationalist and I was like scrolling through after I subscribed to the Patreon and like saw there's a love exposure episode and like I was like oh my god someone like gets who I am and um you know I think it's very special that my little artistic project that I do to make myself feel alive and to combat the horrors of being a person in the workplace and not feeling very artistically accomplished I think it's very touching that all of my little efforts there have resulted in our special little friendship, which has been much like Pariah the Doll, uh, cultivated over a series of esoteric Twitter spaces that have dived quite deep into my human condition. And um, it's been just so beautiful and touching to find out so much about our shared worldviews, despite uh, so many gaps between our, you know, perspectives. And I couldn't be more happy to have you on, dear. That is so, I will never recover from that. I won't recover uh, from what you said either. I'm not very good at taking compliments still. And it's, uh, it's very touching to hear that people take what I do seriously. So thank you. Yeah, no, I'm fully a scan. I'm, I've, I've stalked you. I've groomed you into having me on the pod. I'm, I'm rearing <laughs> and ready to go. <laughs> um, this week we're talking about, like I said, Sky Ferreira and David Lynch and, I've talked about David Lynch before. I did my uh, Twin Peaks episode, which is one of my favorite episodes I've done. Sayonara Subete no Twin Peaks, which I did um, right before moving to Tokyo. And actually, if I recall correctly, that was um, a year ago to the date. So there's a lot of uh, beautiful synchronicities going on here. But I was very interested in talking about these two uh, pieces of very distinct art with you because... I think that my lust for fame and my drive forward into reestablishing reality through a glamorous performance of the self uh, really comes to a perfect front through both of these. And I think you might have kind of the same imagination as well. Yeah, I I certainly believe this. I think I, to clarify, we're starting with Sky Pereira, right? Yeah. Because I think my biggest point there is with her where if you, you know, listen to Sirens in our personality test episode, I'm really similar to um, Betty from Mulholland Drive. And um, I think Sky Ferreira also gives me um, this weird mirror moment effect, this kind of like Lacanian recognition of the self where... I don't know that we are very similar people at all. I'm sure we're not. But when I discovered her and I started listening to her music, I was shocked at how uh, how articulate she was of emotions I was feeling, both good and bad, mm-hmm. and experiences I was having. And um, how she was doing it with a lot less self-awareness than I might. Um, and she was just presenting these as artistic fact. And um, 
yeah, so I totally understand what you're saying about these themes being like integral to your life because they absolutely are. I think that Sky Ferreira's uh, just a nuclear bomb, full throttle thrust into the absurd and the embarrassing and the beautiful and her sort of unique personal style and brand of like human beauty um, is fascinating to me in the same way that like much more well-known and critically acclaimed uh narrative thrust of Mulholland Drive is oh I mean you got it exactly right um and yeah like like you mentioned we're gonna talk about Nighttime My Time which is the 2011 debut studio album by Sky Ferreira and for me this oh sorry it was not from 2011 it's from 2013 but I I remember this album most specifically from uh, entering college in 2014 as a uh, freshman where at the same time I was listening to Azealia Banks broke with expensive taste as discussed last week and I was completely entranced by this beautiful blonde model with all of her acne completely revealed to the public doing these enormous flagellations of the self in this kind of shoegazy post-punk electronic mode uh and I was so riveted by this this little woman putting her entire being into art without any sense of irony at all that um from the very beginning I just couldn't I couldn't get enough it it felt like someone was singing out of my own being yeah I had actually a shockingly similar experience I associate her with the same time in my life which for me was a year ago starting college um (laughs) and actually almost exactly a year to the date um I had spent the summer talking to my two roommates over text we had met in like group chats that the school had set up for people to meet each other and chose each other as roommates um wanting to do like a triple room Um, which are often like the nicest rooms that like freshmen can acquire at my school. So we were very excited and getting along fantastically and sharing all of this media with each other. Um, Mm -hmm. And they were also a big part of my like David Lynch red pill, but um, we had a shared collaborative playlist on Spotify that had um, we, we poured in each like the sum of our music taste, um, which for me was a lot. Like I had the majority of it and I, it was Bjork and Azealia and Lana for me and Fiona Apple and uh, Joni Mitchell from my one roommate. And then my other roommate who is the biggest Charlie XEX fan of anybody I know had put a little song called boys on there. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to the playlist on shuffle after saying goodbye to my best friend from home, driving off into the sunset, ready to go embark on my college journey the following day. And I heard boys and I was shocked. I was obsessed. I was so interested and um, I loved it. It's a great song, but I was also fascinated because Sky Ferreira was a figure who had actually existed in my life for a long time at that point. like in the model way yeah um she it's funny because you know nighttime my time is a laura palmer quote but she has a laura palmer-esque quality of being this shimmering disembodied image 
right. um, much like the, the portrait in the case at school or on her parents' desk. Um, I think Sky Ferreira's music is not particularly well known um, even to this day, it, she only has like a hundred thousand listeners on Spotify and that's with like the very recent release of Don't Forget. Um, so it's probably, you know, a little less than that when I discovered her, but, um, she is, I think, very well recognized, um, especially by people in my generation as the girl from Pinterest or the girl from Tumblr, Uh. because for years I had been seeing images of this beautiful but not pretty bleach blonde woman with grown out roots and chipped nail polish and red lipstick and under eye circles looking incredible and disassociated and she was a fashion icon to me for years and I had never even been that aware of who she was other than her name Mm -hmm. I was vaguely aware of the fact that she was a musician And when I heard this song, it all clicked. And I realized that there was a a much deeper and louder element of her, of this look that I had been chasing. And that there was a reason that I liked the way she looked because it was a reflection of her mind, which is something that I came to discover through her music. Yeah, I felt the exact same way. Like for me, like when I first kind of encountered her, the first moment that I I really like truly was, uh, you know, acknowledging her image myself wasn't like really in the tumblr or pinterest way but it was in the cover photo as shot by gaspar noe um famed director of my favorite movie uh irreversible at least in my top five and um this extremely vulnerable photo of her behind a glass shower door sparkled with water with her breasts revealed i was so fascinated by this emboldened personality that even though sometimes the music wasn't even clicking with me a lot of the time, I just kept wanting to dig into it deeper so that I could get, like, an idea of who this person was. And uh, she really cemented her imagination on me when I had been on SSRIs, going to therapy, convincing my psychiatrist that I needed more, like, psych like uh, psych medication, um, basically, like trying to drown my own world in a vision of depression so that people would feel sorry for me. And then one night, uh, one of my best friends I've ever made, her name is Emily, uh, we did shrooms together. Uh, She didn't do any, it was just me. And I took the shrooms and we listened to this album front to back on my vinyl copy after I had spent so much time pondering on her image that she Uh, so publicly pandered and played with and hearing this entire earnest true shoegaze explosion of pop music uh when i was you know psychedelically altered uh, it really was a a extremely momental moment in my life and since then i don't take depressive medication i don't like go to the therapist or whatever i i believe very truly in the power of myself and uh sky ferreira is a serious part of that honestly I mean, that's so beautiful. And I think I, you know, had an experience similar in that it was not in psychedelic drugs were not involved. And I do go to therapy (laughs) and I'm on SSRIs, but I felt this immediate rush of, I went to, I go to a very niche liberal arts school that caters to a very specific type of 
girl. It's all women for mm-hmm. the listeners at home. And they, um, and I was finally, for the first time in my life, finding people with the same like niche interests as me who like really appreciated me for my quirks and eccentricities and feeling this rush of like freedom and explosion of the will as I was kind of like, you know, away from my parents for the first time. And in those first few weeks, I was walking around campus with my AirPods blaring this album and feeling on top of the world and feeling all of these emotions, good and bad, um, just exploding through the music and feeling this um, incredible reflection of having new experiences that I thought I was the only person having and then oh I that is exactly and- it what you just said I I'm so sorry to interrupt you but like when you feel like you're the only person feeling this and then Sky Furrer puts them out in like extremely blatant focal point like I felt precisely the same thing exactly and it is shocking and like yeah like very life-affirming and beautiful and then on top of that the music is just so good um and the biggest moment of shock for me to like skip way ahead was probably the title track which is my favorite song by her um and also the closer but I was I think it's the final narrative thrust of the album. And I think when I finally heard it after listening to all of the album all the way, and we had gone from, you know, this shoegazy kind of pop rock chant music to stuff that is only describable as like almost noise music, like noise pop mm-hmm. on Omanko and Christine, where she's sort of piercing this veil of noise. Um, and this wall of like electronic production um, with her voice. And I had heard all of it and I had heard a full range of emotion experiences. And it ends with this slow meditative kind of satanic chant of Laura Palmer quotes um, over like a cocktail twins beat. And I was shocked. I felt so um, seen and, um, I was so ready to move faster and faster into the void. Yeah, I totally get it. I mean, the entire thrust of this record is that she is drawing on top of every single point of women's cultural interest of the last 20 years. I mean, the I, I can't even begin to summate exactly how precisely she is putting all of these elements on stage uh, between the heroine chic... Um, baggy-eyed aesthetic that you mentioned earlier uh, from, like, the influence of shoegaze, which, uh, I mean, her kind of, like, post-punk impulses have become very popular currently, but she was doing this about nine years ago now. She was taking all of, like, these, like, Courtney Love, heroin chic, depressive Laura Palmer, on the verge of death, aesthetic inspirations, and recognizing them as archetype, but drawing from them in a really earnest emotional way, so specifically that any emotional human being can't help but like kind of gasp and like pearl clutch at at, at these songs. Exactly. And I think that you're there's something so right about her being this her influences being a summation of like everything women have been interested in for 20 years 
because there's something about Sky Ferreira's music that is very timeless. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is misinterpreted a lot by like fake news critics who have often, even in their positive reviews, uh, spoken highly of her like 80s and 90s influence and talked about her as the sort of like late um, late 1900s revival act, um, which I don't think is true because I think there's so much going on and she synthesizes so many things sonically that um, you nothing, even if you go back to the influences that she cites and you listen to Courtney Love or My Bloody Valentine or Kate Bush, nothing sounds quite like her. I completely agree. Because, I mean, she's doing this in, like, the post-Tumblr, like, pop sensibility element of it all. Like, I think that because of her awareness of image, it can't ever sound exactly like she's doing pastiche because she is a product of, like, all of those resonant emotional images. So it's not her, you know, futilely reaching backward to try to merely recreate the past as, like, what I imagine happens on Stranger Things or uh, Dua Lipa's future nostalgia. Um, She's really earnestly expressing this, like, postmodern discontent of being a woman created of all of these shrieking images from the past compiling into one disaster in the present. Yeah, and I actually, I mentioned on the Florence episode, I was in a poetry class my first semester and it, and it was a, you know, a poetry criticism thing where we were reading and, and analyzing poetry. But there was one assignment where we were instructed to write our own poem um, after a poet that we had studied and I chose um, Langston Hughes' And I was doing a sort of self-portrait in poetry. And she was a huge influence on this because the, you know, middle section of this poem I wrote was like a stream of consciousness list of all the different like feminine archetypes that I have been told that I resemble and model myself after. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I made a point of making it a little too long and a little too varied Um, and it takes up half the page and it's almost impossible to, uh, quite get what I was getting at, which is what my professor really praised me for. And I'm only talking about this poem because it was reviewed well by my professor and the people I read it to. (laughs) I don't think of myself as a poet, but, um, um, no disclaimers on I'm so popular. If you make a poem, you think it was special. You just got to admit it that way. Yeah, but I think that Sky Ferreira, um, who does appear in the list um, of <laughs> names, is an interesting figure because she does that. And it's created this weird time loop where recently, due to like an increased inf- interest in things of her era and the kind of like indie sleaze hipster thing, she's really come back into fashion and... Um, don't forget especially has been quite popular and I think even earned her a few new fans which shocked me but um yeah but I mean you're exactly on to like the right kind of thing here I think because like what when you're imagining her as like this big summation of archetypes and I mean it, it, you have to go all the way back because aside from her being like a popular model like 
Sky Ferreira is kind of in the same way that, like, both, like, Grimes and Charlie XCX and Crystal Castles were. They are all, like, a product of, like, this MySpace era where it's, like, these girls with a lot of feelings with boyfriends older than them who smoke cigarettes, who have these uh, endless loops of cultural information feeding into them, and they uh, try to express it through this, like, kind of recycled, postmodern, uh, and thus fiercely original product of the self. And so when she started releasing music on her MySpace, uh, she got scooped up by record labels. Uh, She became a model. She couldn't release anything because uh, she has notoriously high OCD standards for what she wants to put out. Uh, And she also is very lazy, I think. Um, But like Azealia Banks, her triumphing by putting out a perfect record of music that encapsulates every single one of her themes is really beautiful in hindsight of all of that like myspace ephemera exactly and i think that if i keep saying exactly (laughs) i do too that's actually like a problem on my show like i can't stop telling people that they say something like exactly no but i concur is what i'll say yeah Um, and it's, I think the interesting thing that I'm kind of getting at here is that the time loop quality comes from this idea that she goes into style, like she's in a very favorable place now, but she never goes out of style Yeah. because I think that she mixes so many archetypes that like nobody could not get her music and, um, at any time because she is so, um, on to something mm-hmm. and her artistic journey is so well guided and like what she's doing just can't be argued with um and i think grimes is the same way partially because they are in many ways the same figure yeah i think but so where, too where grimes has misses like she has albums that are not as good and songs that are not as good her sound is so distinct and can't be measured up to anything else that it's hard to ever pinpoint a point where like Grimes was passe or like in a bad moment or out of style or doing something that was uninteresting to the public. Right. Cause I, um, I mean, I, cause like Sky Ferrer is like famous for putting this album out nine years ago now and not doing anything else since then. And people like to dog her for that. But, I mean, I think it's kind of special. Like, she put out this one single product that is a perfect encapsulation of everything going on and then hasn't done, you know, anything but a few singles, like, since then because uh, she has nothing that she feels confident uh, portrays her emotionality and its complete frightening totalitarianism. But, like, when you, like, go through this record, you see, like, this complete thrust it's crazy like you see an entire narrative arc of a woman so emotional and so felt into the world that even if you're like not vibing with like the way this record sounds um it's quite produced by ariel reichstad i think his name is um and uh justin ryson both of them having been like major producers for a lot of pop records even if you like don't vibe for any of that her sheer uncanny truthfulness 
And that being the result of all of these piling years of culture, I mean, you just can't, you can't deny it. You can't. And it's fascinating that you brought up the production and stuff, because I think that people, I've never met someone, I've met people, a lot of people who don't like her music, Uh but I've never met someone who thought it was bad. Oh, um, that's exactly right. Lots of people don't like her, but no one will ever say she's bad. No, because it's literally not. And even songs that there are, there are really bad Sky Ferreira moments um, in the early years, um, pre Ghost EP, which is when she started her sort of. I mean, Ghost EP is a mess as well. That that yeah. that was messy boots. She fell over. Those f- folk songs. Ghost? Oh, no, I can't. It's not right. She, I mean, but, but <laughs> it was messy boots. It, it was, was messy fucking boots. You, you could, could t- like, you could literally feel the label like choking her. And honestly, like most of the time, especially with like Azelia, and honestly with her more recently, I'm not really buying that the label is like hampering them creatively. But in her first EP, and as she was like coming up to this album. I think that you could definitely feel the hands pushing her in different directions. And that Nighttime My Time came out so perfectly her with no altercations and with no kind of um, corporate glove above it. It feels really special. Yeah, and even in her weaker moments, she pre- she is so tapped into the culture that she often ends up making something that is prototypical of like a future sound. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that like the folky songs on the Ghost EP, like Ghost and Sad Dream, in many ways predict the later style of Casey Musgraves. I don't know if you like listen to her a lot. I sure or- do. <laughs> uh, Pageant Material and um, whatever trailer, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Both wonderful records. (laughs) I will tell her, I will tell you, she's one of the first people I ever truly stand. I I have seen her in concert three times. Love her to death. But I think that, like, obviously, Casey is much better at this, but the sort of golden hour sound of country folk um, songs set to psychedelic kind of electronic soft production was almost... uh, created by sky on ghost and sad dream because her label wanted her to make this like marnie michaels trendy hipster folk music and she couldn't quite do that so she had to rely on that instinct that she had and when it pokes through it sounds relevant but there are still some flops i also think her worst song of all time is Red Lips off of that. Oh, that song is unlistenable and the video is humiliating. It's unlistenable, but this is yet again a thing where even in her failures, her instinct still kind of shines through Mm -hmm. where that song is terrible. It was clearly slapped on there to get one club hit for this album, Um, as were the like million um, remixes of Everything is Embarrassing, (laughs) none of which are good. but that song does. Wait, can you imagine way. if they played Everything is Embarrassing at the club? I mean, you. You're, I would live. I would. You've never been for... to a club unless um, Little Miss Fake ID went to work. But like, if Everything is Embarrassing came on at the club, I would slit my throat with a butter knife. I would no, saw. Girl, I, actually, 
I actually, if you are the police or my grandmother, stop listening here, but I actually have been to a club many times. I went to, I went out in West Hollywood when I visited my sister. <laughs> you went to we WeHow? I went to WeHo, girl, and it was the weekend that uh, Beg For You came out. Oh, um, no. And I don't like that song. I hate Rina Midwayama. Um, I think that it she is a flop. Wait, okay. I think actually I want to say I've been like workshopping Trina Tryhardayama names for quite a while, and I think I have now after hearing your input, Trina Midwayama is like the best I can do it, or Tina Midwayama. Oh my god, we we have fun. this is like two years of work in the making. Wow, I I cannot believe that I have had such an impact because one of the, the my favorite things when I'm so popular is your hatred of Rena. And you saw her Ugh. from the jump, from the jump. You were calling because the thing about Rena is her obsession, her Mulholland Drive impulse towards fame, mm-hmm. her obsession with just pouring herself out into any soundscape, into any artistic territory that will get her like fifty thousand gay followers on Instagram. And that making- okay, that is exactly what is most disgusting about her because, you know, I really do get people being attention whores. Like I love attention whores, but she is doing it specifically for faggots, and I find it to be very embarrassing because, like, up until like the Tina era, Tina Tryhardyama, until Tina Midwayama, like up until her. When people kind of just, like, went to market the gays, it was because of a career failure. Like, it was because of a complete destitution of their pop music. But she, like, went for it right away. And it's depressing, and her music reflects that. Yeah, because there's something very soulless and very, like, Diane Selwyn, dead-eyed, like, dark undercircle about her being, like, this hell is better with you. Like, it feels like she's just playing to the culture. She's not playing to anything. It doesn't ever feel like she's ever had a single human emotion in her entire career. No. Um, and I'm, I lost my train. Oh, what I was saying about Red Lips, I think it in many ways predicts, um, PC music. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I get that. I think, I think it does. And I think that her impulse towards, uh, the avant-garde mixed with this authoritarian impulse of the label to make this song kind of resulted in this weird slop where you can tell something deeper is going on, but nothing Mm -hmm. about the song feels deep that I think really was then purposefully reproduced by like Sophie and A.G. Cook. Yeah, no, I I think that's interesting. And, you know, to tie it, to Trina Midway Yama. I, I, I do also think that, like, Sky is an attention whore. Because, I mean, she, you know, postulates herself as Laura Palmer with the direct title of this album, which is taken from Fire Walk With Me. She wants to be kind of this glamorous, tragic image. And even when she does it, you know, unlike people who just do it immediately, like, for this, like, corporate gain... She feels very knowing about her appeal to the kind of um, commercial appeal. And all of her sort of like winking distress about her being famous, uh, it rings very emotionally true. I, I want to talk a little bit about I Blame Myself, which is I think the lead single of this album, featuring her with her hair dyed black uh, dancing in a music video surrounded by black people as in the wake of a 
of a real-life drug controversy. She was uh, arrested for heroin possession with her um, boyfriend at the time, Zachary Nantuka-Nantuka from Dive. Uh, the, the video features all of that, and I, I just think that, like, with that kind of song, I blame myself. It's like, she is so aware of all of her cultural kind of nonsense that she's imparting everywhere, and she takes it seriously, and she regrets it, and then she continues on her mission towards fame. Exactly, and I want to talk about I blame myself, too, because I think on that song, she is attention-whoring, but I think I'll lay this issue to rest— the difference between her and someone like Rena is that she wants attention for something that she truly is and for something that is <gasps> truly a part of herself. Oh my God. And Rena wants attention for something that is fake oh. and that she's constructed for the attention. Yes. Yes. I mean, the thing is, is that like Trina is like trying like tooth and nail. Like she is like clawing to like get her like identity politics oppressed Asian points and Sky Ferrer is like this like pretty little white girl who's like I have a lot of feelings please adore me with attention and she's being so obvious with it like the lyrics of I blame myself are like directly calling attention to the fact that she wants more people looking at her and that is so much more beautiful than like being a fake like identity politics little nightmare so that you can get woke points to make a career out of yourself with ugly makeup. Exactly, because even when like a like oppressed people do identity politics music, sometimes it feels more real than what Rena is doing because maybe they have actually experienced oppression in their lives. But like, I'm not saying that Rena maybe hasn't, but what I am saying is that she um, is playing to a part of herself that certainly feels exaggerated. Whereas even in some of like Beyonce's more identity politics songs, which are not songs that I live for, Beyonce <laughs> is playing to a part of herself that she has probably actually felt and like would feel if there was no one looking. I, I mean, even Beyonce aside, it's like the way that Sky Ferrer is, exaggerates emotion. I mean, okay, looking at other songs on this record, like if you go to like 24 Hours where she is like begging some surely like unshaven, ugly man in like unfitting clothes to spend more time with her she does it with like such screaming realness like like literally like Paris is burning realness like walking the runway that like oh my god all of that exaggeration just con convinces me of this beautiful world of horrifying extreme beautiful emotion that I'm constantly like no she going through 24 hours she's so hyperbolic that it becomes real in actually a very like Lynchian way. And I think yeah. she cites David as an influence and, you know, references his work heavily on this album. And, um, but I think that one of the things that always struck me about Twin Peaks and also Mulholland Drive and some of his other works is that sometimes the like weird notes, like characters like Denise Bryson or the, um, it, them having to take the taxidermy deer off the wall mm -hmm. in the police station and putting it on the table are so non sequitur and like hyperbolic that it, it becomes things that happen in real life. 
Like it, it is so hyper real. And there's something very hyper real about Sky Ferreira where I don't feel like a little bit of embarrassment when I like have like a romantic failure. I feel everything is embarrassing. Oh like, I feel my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. You got like, I, sorry, I'm like screaming, but like you have it exactly right. Like Sky Ferreira is the same as like taking the fucking antlers off the wall. It's exactly the same. She does it with these huge emotional gesture, like, like, just, how do you say this word? That's it. Can you say it again? Gesticulations. Gesticulations. How did that sound? Great. Okay. She does it with these enormous, (laughs) (laughs) she does it with these, like, enormous gesticulations. She is, like, doing these huge postures of, like, Western art. But because it's so big and her feelings are so large reaching, but they're also so awkwardly handled and like private that it feels endlessly infinite. Like I, I really can't underestimate and like understate how these songs feel like really awkward. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yes. And I know exactly what you mean. Cause one of my biggest takes that I've been like preparing for this show is I think the Actually, Mulholland Drive is almost a perfect pairing for this particular album, but I think that Sky Ferreira's whole discography pairs the best out of anything with the filmography of one Lena Dunham because Uh. Girls is so reflective and does the same thing with emotion that Nighttime My Time and the Ghost EP do, where everything is really awkward and private and kind of like disgusting. Mm -hmm. Like you don't really want to be hearing this beautiful woman talk about how she had this like failed crush on everything is embarrassing and like, didn't get a text back or how like her boyfriend won't stay with her. So they only have a day left together or that she literally was praying, like cross her heart, hope to die for like a boy to change her mind about boys you know, it it's a little embarrassing and childish and like immature in the very real way that like people who are young adults are embarrassing and childish and immature. Yeah. No, God, so true, sister honey leg. Like, oh, I I think that's like really like what clicked it with me is like it's this like screaming woman, like relying on so many of these archetypes of um failed troubled relationships and yet she does it with such earnesty that no matter how much like cliche she leans into and in fact honestly the more cliche she leans into uh the more fascinating and and real it feels and i i especially like think this about songs like you're not the one which um was a major anthem for me in college as i was like cycling through grinder hookups who never cared about me and i wanted them to care about me and it's like it's this perfect song about reconciling with as we discussed in your sirens episode someone who you want to love you but never will and the pain of having to admit to that is unlike anything else and i cannot name any other artist who has ever put that feeling exactly like she did and I think a lot about um, nobody asked me if I was okay. Oh One of my the God. Greatest songs ever written because it is so, 
I cannot believe she is admitting to what she's admitting. And there are Lana songs that do this. I even think it's not a good song, but like Charlie XCX, No Angel, where she's just like straight up being like, I cheat and lie and like, I'm no angel and whatever kind of do this thing where like the pop girls are just admitting to being kind of bad people. Uh huh. But nobody asked me if I was okay, takes it into light speed because it is so obvious and so like, un- like you can tell that there's no tongue in cheek. There's no confessional understanding that what she's doing that like, what she's doing is selfish or stupid. She is just voicing so freely and so earnestly with no second thought that she feels that a bad situation revolves around her and that nobody asked her if she was okay. And that is so real and so like brutally honest to the selfishness you feel Mm -hmm. at a young age. No, I mean, Uh, my God, she knows the depths of the human soul because she doesn't know them at all. Like, because she's just, like, uselessly thrashing around in this, like, black space of the album, it all sounds so true. Like, I always think that about nobody asked me, in parentheses, if I was okay, end parentheses. Like... This is a song that is, like, meant totally earnestly, but, like, it makes so much more sense, like, with post-text. Like, when you're looking at this, like, woman who's, like, begging for understanding when you can very easily imagine her being the shrew. Yeah, and I think this is um, a good point to mention that I'm, you know, was a big Sky Ferreira fan this whole year. and, And amongst my friends, some of whom love her, some of whom are aware of her through me, and some of whom, like, barely don't know her song titles and like snippets of lyrics are often become these like tongue-in-cheek jokes where if you want to recognize your own selfishness or your own stupidity Mm -hmm. you can be like oh I saw that guy like stalked on Instagram in class today like everything is embarrassing because that is what she's talking about and that demonstrates a level of self-awareness that she does not have because it recognizes the kind of like stupidity of some of what she does. But lines like nobody asked me in parentheses if I was okay. Everything is embarrassing. Lost in my bedroom. Um, These are quotations that feel so powerful because they're so earnest and just kind of dumb and i don't mean to say that in a way no no you mean exactly right they're dumb i mean these are like vague approximations and uh because i think you know i'll I'll say it i don't think she's an especially talented songwriter at all no and i think that her kind of like lack of critical eye and like lack of eye for self-editing or for I don't know, literary illusion. I think that her complete disdain for that makes her kind of a perfect icon. Well, she is an interesting character because I don't know if you're familiar with that Twitter meme that is like old of the um, three-way Venn diagram of pop girls. And one circle is like can sing, the other one is like can write, and the other one is can perform. 
<laughs> and like so the in between between like can sing and can write is Lana but she can't perform or like maybe Rihanna can perform but she can't really sing or write or like you know whatever and there's always this fourth bubble that was like photoshopped into the meme later but has always been the funniest of can't do any of these things but still makes bangers and it's Sky Ferreira <laughs> yeah Katy Perry I think is in there in the original cut but I think this has always been the most interesting to me as a lover of pop music because the people in here are actually what they're good at is curation and world building mm-hmm. and not songwriting and not mute but yeah. like Sky Ferreira is a curator she can't really write a song and I don't know if you read the interview I think it was in Pitchfork when Downhill Lullaby came oh I've out. read that fucking interview honey yeah she talks about her songwriting process. I think this is the where she literally she just like dementedly like makes people repeat things over and over again until it sounds like the image in her mind because she has she doesn't she has like no songwriting ability. She just is like she says she, God, she says she can't write things coherently on paper. Like she didn't she doesn't know how to read music, so she just hears other songs. Like she hears like a My Bloody Valentine song. She's like I like the guitar there, and she plays it for a guitarist, and she's like make it sound like this. Until they do it over and over and over again. And it's because she's literally a curator commissioning art. She's a patron. She's commissioning works from her masters to hang in her salon. And this album is the salon. Like it's the final summation of her sharing her collages with everybody in the world. Yes. I mean, that is exactly perfect. And the images in that salon, we, we've talked about quite a few of these. I want to mention in particular Omanko, um, which is a fucking huge joke. Because, like, in this like, enormous approximation, she suddenly imagined that nobody in Japan would ever dare to mention the word Omanko. They would never say it. They would literally never say it. That That's, like, what's going on in her brain. And I, like, told my boyfriend about this. Um, and the fact that it's, like, mysteriously, like, not on the Japanese edition of the album. And I was like, what do you think about this, like, American white woman titling her song Omanko? And he thought it was funny. Like, he was like, it's not like... He, I, she has, like, this big image that, like, the only word in the Japanese language that is inappropriate to say is pussy. Which is, like, not correct at all. I know why. But you know, know what? Like, her, her imagination is right. Like, the idea is like, oh, a pussy that is so forbidden, you can't even say it out loud, is true. Well, I was about to say, I know why she thinks that. And it's because when I heard that song for the first time, I was intrigued. And I looked up Omanko, what it means, and I learned it means pussy. And I also saw that, like, one of the first things that comes up is, like, a Wikipedia page where it tells you that, like, that, for some time, was the only word you could not say on Japanese television. Like, it would they would, like, cut you off. I, you probably know this better than me. And so she saw this singular one-off Wikipedia fact that I saw in a 10-second Google search and thought, you know what? That's the most shocking thing ever. And then she said, oh, Japanese Jesus, come on. I, that song, to me, is probably one of the most powerful songs on the record. A, because it's sonically so beautiful and so fun. B, because I always think about this podcast and it feels like the Chi-Chi anthem. Like, I think about, like, being in Japan. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, I've always interpreted it as being on a masturbation binge because of I the... I felt the same way, too. 
I, a lot of people have this interpretation and I assume it's because she's so vague about what she's talking about, but she does mention the comics that could be like porn. And then also there's that vibrating synth noise that you don't really hear that kind of sound. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So it sounds like a vibrator and she's doing this Japanese Jesus, like gearing up for a Japanese Christmas. And it's this orientalist like lost in translation fantasy that i think is interesting from it's a very new one because orientalism is very old but this is sort of a new spin on it where i think a lot of americans today Mm -hmm. think of japan as a very perverse place and also because we import so much of counterculture from japan we're like now anime is huge but it's not mainstream and like there are just like a lot of like anime fans here yeah or kind of like avant-garde works like uh evangelion or um belladonna of sadness or whatever are like brought in and japanese fashion is seen as like probably the most cutting edge in the fashion industry for thinking about like Comde Garçon or like yoshima yamamoto um and so there's this idea that Japan is like the the last vestige of the avant-garde and it's probably pretty misguided. I'm sure you can speak to that. <laughs> but like John Little Sky Ferreira totally believes it. And she wrote an anthem for the girl who goes on a trip to Japan to go to fetish bars and to take shots and to see Chi Chi perform in Nagoya and to literally you know no i mean you have it exactly right like she's lost in translation like literally and i find it beautiful like people would probably be upset or like something about that kind of um frame of mind but i find it beautiful to see her like brazenly get some dumb impression of a culture and then just they take it like a hammer and start i mean i mean this sonically as well this song like sounds like it's beating you over the head with a brick and it's so special to see someone, like, have this, like, misconception of a culture and then just keep barreling forward with it. Also, she... before you keep talking, I have to pee yeah. so bad. I'm going to put an interlude in there, but I am going to, like, kill myself if I don't pee. Okay, go pee. Okay, we're going to pee. Be right back. Oh, my God. I knew it was loud.
we're back. Uh, unless you listen to Sirens, you won't quite realize that there was a four-day break in between um, the previous session of recording and this one. Um, but lots of drama unfolds. David Lynch is happening in reality to both Samantha and I. Um, but we're here to finish out Nighttime My Time and go into Mulholland Drive. And I believe we covered, you know, pretty... Thoroughly, the first half of the album, I was quite drunk and didn't listen back, so I have no idea what I said. Um, But leaving the realm of the kind of shoegazy, punk pop, um, dancing around black people and the I blame myself and narrating your own tragedy, the second half of the album veers into a totally existential, bizarre, um, exploding bodies tragedy um that i i believe is like kind of a perfect final point for representing the laura palmer archetype um what are some of the moments samantha that you love from this part of the record i think that this part of the record is fascinating to me because she goes really from these old 90s influences of like hole and like shoegaze my bloody valentine Mm -hmm. to this very 80s inflected um sound and so i love like love in stereo um i also we failed to talk about christine which i think is probably more it's on it's one of the last songs but it's stylistically probably closer to the first half of the album um Mm -hmm. people hate this song i found out um and i don't agree i think it's a great song i think this is where she sonically it just smashes together all of the things that she had going on all over the album where she's got these you know repetitive shoegazy noise riffs and then this very like loud theatrical 80s vocal um and this kind of like John Hughesian like uh idea of her being this sort of like poor girl hanging out with all these privileged people and she's got all of these things going on. And it, it really comes out to something that is so, it, it, it's the gray slab that she creates where she mixes all these colors together and you just get this flat gray noise and you see yourself reflected in it. It is a mirror. It becomes reflective. It's heavy metal and reflective. Yeah, it yeah. is. I, I get it exactly right because I remember, I think I I talked about this on the former portion of the episode, but when I was, like, lying on my side on the concrete floor of, sorry, the carpeted floor of my frat house, listened to this on shrooms with my, um, you know, best friend Emily, and was listening to Christine, I remember going, this album is genius. This song is so good. And she said, really? And no, it totally clicks together. It's, like, that big gray static that she is just composing out of all of these different bizarre cliches and it comes out as this like glimmering green gray um slush that you can stick your hand into and pull out so many different refractions of yourself yeah and i also when i think of this half of the album this is where i do think like she is a little more a product of her time um I don't know this for a fact. Maybe we can get a little fact check on this because I haven't checked the personnel list, but I would imagine the songs on this half have a little bit more input from Ariel Reichstadt mm-hmm. um, because they feel a li- like love in stereo and um, 
even the title track feel a little more inflected with the kind of like Charlie XCX, like true romance or like even like the Haim of the time. Um, like in a sucker as well, yeah. Yeah, there's a very, um, it, it feels as though she takes us back in time on the first half and then sort of it pulls us out into this universal space of the now with these, moments of the past it's a really where things start to run off the rails a little and you can't moor yourself in time you can't find a you know a a place to sit you're just really it's an exhausting album in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and I think this half is where we start to uh see that more heavily yeah I totally get it that this is exhausting and I also found that the back half is like much less listenable but something about love and stereo is like um that kind of like electronic like popping noise at the beginning and like the like radio spinning of it and those like bizarre like kind of bleeps and edits in the chorus it's like this sort of like pre-locates the 80s nostalgia of Dua Lipa and basically everybody else working today and it kind of then deletes it pretext like she seems to have kind of like an um angry like will towards it like she kind of feels like already like irony like too much irony like she's ironed out of this basically and she already kind of feels that like the like 80s thing that she's doing is a kind of um like a joke and gross result of you know pop culture nostalgia and she was doing that like 10 years ago yeah and I think this is really interesting if we take like a biographical approach to her because I was doing a little more reading in the in the off time and you know mm-hmm. uh, one thing that I think is like a well-known fact that shared in every interview is that she was um really like personally close with Michael Jackson um yeah and her grandmother I think was his makeup artist and um she spent a lot of time with him she he uh, encouraged her to find like a record deal um, and this era of her life is like, like, she never says Michael Jackson. She explicitly talks about being 10 years old on, um, I blame myself, I believe, and, and talking about like, you know, her journey towards music. And I think a little bit, if we look at these 80s and 90s and even like 70s influences on this half that she's so angry towards and that there's such like a contempt for it it almost reads as this condemnation of her own past and this kind of like self-critical edge towards the things that made her, whether that be like Michael Jackson or like Madonna, who she um, talks highly of and also was supposed to uh, audition for the biopic. Yes, yeah, she auditioned for the part along with Dasha Nekrasova. Which is so camp. I hope that they talk to each other. I want Sky Ferreira on Red Scare. I mean, they're, like, one degree away from each other. They're one Like, because de- um, it's, like, Paul Kupo and them are, like, besties. Yeah, and Sky also, interestingly, is one of the only people, one of Azealia's only contemporaries to not disavow her. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, she likes her Instagram posts, her more normal ones these days. She d- She's <laughs> commented positively, and... Um, I think Azealia has never come for Sky from what I've been able to see. And so I find that Sky has this really like, just simmering under the edge kind of like red scare anger um, towards the culture yeah. today. And it, 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 I thought that about like Don't Forget as well. Like that that song 
Do, do we talk about it in the first half? We we did not, and I want to talk a little bit about her post nighttime my time era. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, I, I like the song a lot. Yeah, me um, too. and I feel like it is like kind of a continuation of that. Like, I mean, she's doing the eighties nostalgia bit, but she's doing it in like this way about talking about every house on in the neighborhood is like on fire, uh, and she's like doing this like resentful bit against um the. Uh, the the beloved and, and her conceit and i feel like it, it's kind of like this like condemnation of like the culture generally and this like image of uh apocalypse going on in the day-to-day american civilization that it feels like she must be at least just a tiny bit reactionary i think it, absolutely and um, actually she's just totally reactionary i don't even know what i'm I saying i don't know who sky <laughs> ferrera is like i know this girl and i know exactly who she is she has a lot of gay friends so she probably votes Democrat. Like she is a, a quote unquote feminist, but in like a very kind of like boring uh, 2014 way. And, but I know for a fact that she was most certainly raised around a lot of conservatism and it appears in her music. And I know that she is not happy with the way things are going. And that's so evident on Don't Forget. And even like, um, downhill lullaby which is another song people hate this is one of the only ones that like and i love it i love this song i love it Uh, produced by the sound designer of twin peaks i believe yes and i can't get enough of this i find it to be her it's really inflected with lana ultraviolence which i think was is like a big critique of it is that she was kind of doing like a pastiche of lana but i find that it is done so lovingly and the um anger that she's posing towards the crowd like towards the listener is so beautiful um and there's a very red scare synchronicity and like when she put it out and you think of like 2019 as the era where like things were really sort of slipping into this sort of like tired malaise that we're in now and um I know, like, a lot of the singles she's putting out now and, like, the masochism stuff was written, like, around the time of Nighttime, My Time and has just been, like, delayed. Um, <laughs> but I do think that song must have had some real societal, like, impulses behind it. She must have been, you know, put it out at the time she put it out for a reason. And um, it the slow kind of moaning comatose vocals and the dead eye just quality of the song it, it's very 2019 and it um it's very red scare yeah yeah absolutely um and you know i also think that downhill lullaby is a very immaculately imagined extension uh sorry it's a very immaculate wait What's the name of the song? Okay, Downhill Lullaby yeah. is a really immaculately imagined extension of Nighttime My Time. Okay, got it. it took me like five minutes to get there. It, I'm like, yeah, they're like they're in the same vein. Because Nighttime My Time is... A, I want to get into the, to the very end of it, and I, I have a lot to say about this, so, you know, we can... Me too. It, top, but the, it ends on such a shocking, perfect, one-two punch of an ending. Just like like a gut punch of a song and I think so it would be very hard to kind of continue it but this comes back to her like really uh cited and like uh well documented like David Lynch influence where she just 
takes the next most shocking shocking step and continues it and makes a song that sounds like the title track that sounds like the ending of the album and it, it reminds me of the ending of the return of just nothing ends it ends on a cliffhanger and she keeps going and going because it literally is a downhill lullaby she can just keep getting deeper and deeper into her emotions um, yeah it, it really does sound like a like Laura Palmer like the, the the Laura Palmer scream plus like Sarah like repeating her name in like the distance and Nighttime My Time is such a shocking moment and I remember using like I used to put this uh, track this, this whole album on at parties because it's a great party album it actually is, yeah. it has it has ebbs and flows it has danceable moments it has moments to go have your cigarette um and I specifically remember I went to like an art party that one of my friends invited me to and it was in this bizarre house with um, enormous pink walls and an excess of furniture just couches everywhere and we put nighttime my time on and we were like sitting around um, like five couches at once and uh, everyone kind of stopped and was like what is going on and this befuddled silence because this whirring guitar nightmare like bizarre march of death that happens in the rhythm as she's singing about uh leaning so far into all of this emotional extremity that she becomes dust and dies it is unlike anything else done on a mainstream pop record it's shocking like there's no other word to describe it and that's such a boring word but it it, i the first time i heard the ending I had not listened to the album all the way through. I know at the beginning of this episode, I talked about my experience with it. And I it took me a while to get all the way through the album because I liked every song so much that I would just like kind of mm-hmm. get captivated on that song and keep listening to it. But when I finally made this sort of long odyssey towards the end, I was met with something so beautiful and horrifying and I can picture mm-hmm. the exact spot I was in I was in the library actually I was studying and I um <laughs> I the song came on and I had to stop what I was doing and just think for a minute because it's so um you know this album is we just said exhausting it's very noisy and it is really fun to listen to um it's a pop record through and through and it's a good record to put on in parties and it's a good record to dance to and this song is such a middle finger towards all of those qualities, this kind of dark, like cocktail twinsy dream pop. Yeah, yeah. And her moaning, just <clears throat> this dead voiced like chant of the I don't the title. Um, it's fascinating. And in so many ways, it really is perfect for the ending of the album because not only does it have that shock value and have such a narrative thrust to it but it even maybe it's just the effect of having listened to all of these pop tracks before you get to it but there's something still very fun about this song it's mm-hmm. listenable it's like interesting <laughs> you I like the beat it was very fun like it you keep listening to it and it's <laughs> cute to sing along to it's like easy and that I think is probably its most shocking quality. It reminds me a lot of, or I guess this is the other way around, but when I listened to your Kiari Pamu Pamu episode, 
I listened to Candy Racer first and it was actually weirdly the first um, song I thought of when I listened to that title track um, because I so get it of the similar there's a really similar quality in their vocal delivery where you think of Carrie doing the like Candy Racer like dead eyed kind of Mm -hmm. dystopian (laughs) chant and like it but they both have this eye towards the pop elements of the album and this kind of smirk it's like smirking um desire to rebel against them it, it both things exist at once in this song it's a masterpiece no absolutely and also similar to carry pommy pommy is that like World Fabrication is the end of that record, and Nighttime My Time is very similar in thematic execution because what they're effectively doing is climaxing on everything else put right up until this last moment so that it only results in, like, a reality-glitching death. And I can't really, like, underestimate, like... I can't really understate, like, how severe like, Sky is in this song. Like, she's, like, really singing about, like, her entire body exploding into dust and how it will feel when everything is reduced to oblivion. And it puts this beautiful, like, green gauze and frame over, like, the rest of the record, knowing that all of this grandiose emotionality, deep investigation of the self, um, endless implementation of all of these, like, you know, blonde girl archetypes, that it all just results in the void. And I just think that's so special. And I, not to show a little bit of my own work, but in in the painting I made for this episode, I was thinking a lot about this song when I was painting her into it, because I I was wanting originally to do kind of a, um, literally just focus on the fact that she was blonde and have her kind of facing away from the viewer, staring at the screen. But this song Mm -hmm. is so uninterested in staring at the screen. It is turning back and staring at you. And she she has no interest in the stuff that she has done up to this point on the album, on this song. It is is directly addressing the viewer. It is turning away from every sonic theme she has come up to, uh, you know, up to this point. The production on it sounds like very singular in her catalog, with the exception of Downhill Lullaby. It Mm -hmm. is a new direction she's staring somewhere new she's and she's looking she's turned her back on the rest of it and it's just staring straight into the void it's beautiful it is beautiful because in your effort to curate all of your messy emotional tangles in your pursuit of knowing fame in your post-orientalist like nightmare garage rock green shower death dream it all ultimately ends in that one last pop of smoke
2001, directed by David Lynch, um, edited by his, at the time, wife, and a truly fascinating piece of culture. This has been talked about on basically every single podcast I love, including TPN, Red Scare. Everyone has given their two cents, but I was thinking a lot about both of our romantic interest in fame, um, both of our beautiful, blonde, gender non-conforming nightmare realities we artistically curate, and I realized that this is something that has to happen, and I'm also very keen on trying to get through the whole uh, filmography of him, but... Um, my experience with Mulholland Drive is that I fucking hated this movie the first time I saw it. I watched it when I was 19, and it was introduced to me by a reoccurring menace of the podcast, my um, ex-friend, bisexual film girl, now a contributing editor on Letterboxd, um, and I willed myself to hate it, despite being very fascinated by um, a lot of like the horror elements and the tension. I decided I didn't like this movie, and it wasn't saying anything, and it was pretentious. And it wasn't until I moved to Japan and rewatched it that I, I began to gradually fall in love with it, and I, I'm very happy to reassess it, but I am curious as to what your first exposure to Mulholland Drive was. So my first exposure was actually relatively similar. I had watched Twin Peaks. I had, like, I don't know if I had finished The Return at this point, because it, Twin Peaks is such a long saga that, like, I... Um, the return took me a while. I think it was almost coterminous with my completion of that series. But I um, well, that's that's the best way to watch it is yeah in a, in a long state of mind. People who like binge all of it in a series of days. I'm like, what are you doing? But yeah, yeah. And um, I liked it a lot. I was getting really into David Lynch, and <clears throat> my one of my roommates had a friend come visit town, um, and they were staying with us, and this friend like had an interesting experience at this movie where um she had felt that it was um the scariest film she'd ever watched and that she had watched it while high apparently and thought that the jitterbug scene at the beginning was horrifying which is quite funny to me at least i get it though yeah and so we were just we decided uh, the group of four of us my two roommates myself and this friend we're all gonna watch it together 
on a laptop and we watched it in two sittings um because i think we like got distracted or um wanted to go out or something and um i was immediately entranced by it more so than my two roommates or the friend because they are all big david lynch fans that's like why we watched this movie is because we had been talking about him and i was actually Mm -hmm. the newest to his filmography but um none of us had except for the friend that was coming in had seen the film before um and this is how i knew i was going to sort of usurp them in my fandom because (laughs) they were not as fascinated by it as i was um I, i remember one of my roommate one of my roommates feeling kind of moved by it um, the other one who like loves Twin Peaks more than anybody I've ever met um, did not live for it. Um, the friend was kind of like so-so and I was fascinated. I felt I had seen myself. I felt I had seen the whole world in one movie. And um, I immediately jumped on the opportunity to see it in a theater nearby um, a few months oh, later. Oh, great. And then I have seen it about a million times since then um, in different situations i've designed a drinking game to this that i uh talk about on the sirens episode and um i it's one of my favorite movies to show people it is one of my favorite movies of all time i probably my favorite Um, maybe followed by or maybe um following inland empire but yeah i love that um i mean it's funny to get into mulholland drive about you know, virtually 20 years after its initial release. And I can't even imagine the beauty of the cultural landscape at the time that this was admired and popularly seen. Like, if you look at my DVD cover right here, at the very top, Academy Award nominee Best Director David Lynch is featured on this. And as I, like, leaf through, like, the little 10 clues to unlocking this thriller... It's really beautiful to me that, like, the fallout of the Gwen Stefani 90s and the kind of, like, butt rock music going on at the time and this whole, um, you know, levitating towards and around 9-11, it all kind of um, accomplishes, I think, one of the peaks of American culture where this was, like, well-known, popularly discussed, and a... uh, vaguely financially successful film and 9-11 was like a huge part of its success and I didn't realize that until I was kind of like researching for this episode but um a lot of Americans saw this I think after 9-11 um even though it was made before it um but it's sort of vogue like an art house movie came after it and a lot of critics pointed out the um similarities in the like once you see it you can't unsee it theme of this movie to the sort of unveiling of America's past that happened on that day where you know people became aware that this terrorist organization that we created in the 80s um, to combat the Soviet Union had come back to commit one of like the greatest atrocities to ever occur on our soil and um, America felt like an entirely different idea than what we had all grown up hearing that it was. And yeah, and the, the movie does the exact same thing. It basically is this grand curtain reveal about the actual monstrosity and darkness at the heart of our most popular medium, which is filmmaking, 
Um, and something I, I think about a lot of, like, early 2000s, like, late 90s art is that even if they're not conscious of 9-11, like, I, I was just talking about this with Jack, it's like some of the best art made about 9-11 was, like, made uh, prior to 9-11 because um, heterosexuals are horrible at dealing with their um, mass cultural trauma and, as opposed to homosexuals with AIDS. And, like, you can so see like kind of the stretch from um like things like these arnold schwarzenegger like anti-iranian like uh action like scary middle east antagonists to like this um completely glitching um burnt film nightmare escape of mulholland drive and whether or not anyone involved in these films was kind of anticipating such an event i think like the the you know, buzz of mountain culture just in the air at the time manifested in so many great pieces of art. Yeah, and, you know, to kind of reverse course and mention, like, Sky again, we talked a lot on that section about um, how it feels like even in her misses, she was, like, predicting or, like, uh, kind of pre-textualizing all of this music to come. Like I know I mentioned like Casey Musgraves or um, the kind of 80s pastiche of today. And mm-hmm. I think that David Lynch is has a very similar artistic process to her of just mashing together all of this history and all of these archetypes into one slab. And um, something about that technique clearly creates this some this cultural artistic ability to see the future um because i think when you're so interested in the past and so aware of it on like a massive scale um you you can start to predict things with uncanny accuracy and this film was originally supposed to be a television show as like a lot of people know and i think about right. this a lot because especially with regards to the 9-11 thing because i wonder you know if it were to be a tv show it would have been airing while that happened and i wonder how it would have dealt with it and how thematically it would have been different um because i think the sort of disjointed quality of half of the film appearing to be a television pilot and then half of it you know being stuff that he shot much later um after he'd already determined to make it a film is what creates this uncanny um similarity to the tragedy and i think that um were it to be like a continuing television saga that would have utterly failed Interesting. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen Audrey Horn in LA. Like, I just would have, like, had been so fast. And you can, like, see kind of the echo of her. And it's so unfortunate it never got to be because I think that there is, like, so much, like, gross, like, appropriate. We were talking on the Sirens episode. Please pay me $5. Please fucking pay me my money. But, like, about, we both got Audrey Horn in that personality test. And it's, like, I feel like her image gets, like, really, like, conflated and disgusting with, like, you know, internet girls being like, oh, I'm just, like, her. You know, it's a, a revolting thing. And he ultimately did manage to rectify her image with her truly revolting and frustrating um, completely blackpilled portrayal on The Return, but I would have loved to have seen her on a, a show in LA like this, but um, 
to briefly summarize the plot in a vaguely comprehensible way, uh, the way I understand this is Naomi Watts plays um, Betty, virginal, beautiful, very white, very skinny. Um, She was the inspiration of Maria in Silent Hill 2 with the costuming, and you get to see her uh, approach this starry-eyed world of Los Angeles. Um, She comes across an amnesiac post-car accident. Uh, Laura Elena Herring playing Rita, and they begin to peril through LA together as these vignettes are happening in the background. Um, At one point, uh, a climactic reveal of the truth kind of happens as they realize it's all an illusion. Naomi Watts awakens to a dream as Diane, uh, and you kind of realize that the beginning of the film is some sort of emotional impression of this character, Diane's experience, before she is um, uh, brutally forced towards suicide by the mounting guilt she has for her jealousy and wrath about uh, Camila, who is uh, the reader role in the beginning of the film. The plot, to me, doesn't matter, and I'm tired of talking about plot, because this is a sensory smorgasbord of American filmic images and I do not need to like pick through plot hints to like feel something about this movie especially because I think the plot like a lot of David Lynch projects are um you know have become the subject of these like internet memes and little cultural jokes about how they're plotless or confusing but in almost all of his projects except for maybe Twin Peaks um specifically The Return it, it all comes together at the end. Like when, when you watch Mulholland Drive, if you are at the end and you still don't quite know what was going on, um, you missed something. And the only instance in which <laughs> yeah. I've seen someone have a, an excuse for not understanding the plot is I, I have heard a lot of, a lot of people I've showed this film to have had the, take that they they originally thought that the um that Naomi Watts did not play both roles that they had costumed her so differently that they thought it was two different actresses and thus like two different characters um and while (laughs) that's amazing that's quite a silly thing and oh and multiple people have told me this um and while that's quite a silly thing I, I think that is a valid excuse for not understanding and I think in every situation where I've been met with that explaining to people that it is in fact the same woman um, often leads to kind of a click moment where they realize exactly what had been happening this whole time in the film. But yeah, the plot, yeah. the plot is deeply uninteresting to me and um, feels like a very like stock kind of true crime erotic thriller plot that he uses to explore just the cultural temperature of America at that time. Yeah, I'm so bored of plot. Oh my god, like, this is a classic point on on TPN, so it doesn't necessarily bear repeating, but I mean, whenever I watch, like, movies with people, and we have to, like, go through, like, you know, discussion about, like, what, like, this and this happened, I'm like, I don't care, like, just, like, tell me how you feel, like, I watch this movie, I see these extremely slow crossfades of palm trees, and these mysterious flashing lights, and these huge tittied women um and i just like look at all of it and i get this deep um beautiful longing because i think the reason that i i so love this movie 
is kind of the inverse of why most people like it. I think a lot of people like going through the quote puzzle box unquote and like like the satisfaction of seeing this strange plot unfold. But for me, I love seeing a psyche of a drive towards fame, a lustful homosexual desire. I love watching it all explode in this, you know, two and a half hour perfect portrait of just sheer feeling. Exactly. And I think that David Lynch as a writer is very much a minimalist. I think as a director, he's obviously very maximalist. But the way he writes characters in this film is quite masterful in its ability to create, I would say, the two protagonists, I guess four protagonists in their sort of Mm -hmm. two iterations each, are, you know, four of the most fascinating, well-written characters ever put to screen. And he gives us so little detail about, like, their lives, where... Yeah, I was thinking that, too. uh, Like, you think of the Naomi Watts character in the first half of the film... One of the only things that is ever shared to us about her, her past is that she has family connections in LA and that she's Canadian. And that says it all. The fact that she's Canadian to me is so important because <laughs> she has this like Carly Rae Jepsen-esque like frosty Canadian politeness and, and this air of like quirk and kind of a twee sensibility that pervades that whole half of the film. And so her coming in doing this terrible American accent the entire time as a British actress, Mm -hmm. this transatlantic, like, I'm in this dream place voice. I know exactly (laughs) who that girl is. I know all of her neuroses. And I know perfectly why she's so entranced by this other woman, why she's so entranced by fame as represented by the other woman, and why she's so excited to be where she is doing what she's doing. Um, yeah. I would say my favorite character detail in this entire film is how to not to re uh, rehash the plot a little bit, but how fascinated Betty is by the plot of the movie. Mm-hmm. Whereas Rita does never seems actually particularly interested in figuring out what happened to her. She seems disgruntled and She's like a little actively upset. reluctant. Yeah, yeah. But she won't like, like the, you know, silly detail of her not immediately waking up and looking in her purse is one of the funniest <laughs> things to me where she waits yeah. like a day to do that. She's not interested at all, but this kind of Canadian quirky, like rube girl is fascinated and so excited to be talking to the police and to be like decoding the mystery of this beautiful woman. Oh my God. It's so fucking Canadian. I hate Canadians, by the way. I mean, I will make my exceptions. Like I have, I think a list of 10 Canadians that I excuse and the rest of them are going to the same pit as another country. I don't like two others. (laughs) There are three countries I hate and Canada is one of them, but it's perfect because this like, big-eyed, like, doughy, like, oh my god, a little mystery to unpick is, like, she's, like, going through American culture feels so fucking fitting, because that's all Canadians are capable of doing as America's pathetic little sister. Yeah, and it, Amer- Canadian culture, I've been doing a lot of research on it, because I- I'm sorry, what did you say? I said, I, I, I have something- uh, Did you say Canadian culture? Which I'm a little lost at that sentence. It's, <laughs> it's not existent, <laughs> but I am a little fascinated by Canadian as Canadian. Canada's 
sort of no, no, I'm gonna say Canadian pseudo <laughs> culture because it is literally the entirety of their cultural presence is the absence of American culture where mm-hmm. Canada native Canadians are built on this hatred of Canada and there's a YouTube channel this Canadian political commentator I'm forgetting his name but he's like kind of cute in like a silver foxy way he like discusses Canadian culture and politics. And oh my God, Jordan Peterson. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but he <laughs> always explains that the root of Canada's culture is just wanting to differentiate itself from America. And right. that there's a reaction to that among some Canadians who love America as like a countercultural thing and want to move there and want to reject their Canadian heritage. And this obscure cultural archetype is so effortlessly written into the film by David Lynch who I cannot imagine knows enough about Canada or even enough about like the female psyche to have like known that this was like a known thing that like happens he just like predicted it yeah I mean I've been thinking about this a lot he seems to just innately understand the universe and maybe it's due to his transcendental meditation but like when I was reading um Room to Dream his uh memoir slash biography written um by him and a biographer I was always just so moved by the fact that it seems that he is humanly capable of opening his heart and because of that because of his willingness to accept the universe around him and ingest all of it at once in this enormous gulp, it seems that he is capable of understanding everything about everything without ever having to think or try. Exactly, because in David Lynch films, people react to impossible things that no one has ever experienced and thus no one could ever react to so accurately so uncannily accurately where like no one has ever faced amnesia on such a massive you know unrealistic scale as Rita's amnesia in real life and lived to tell the tale and yet he writes her so beautifully in that he seems to know exactly what that would feel like and that kind of reluctance and like disgruntled attitude is very perfect and like really well executed and successful just because Mm -hmm. I think he's he's so open to experience that he has started to develop this talent for um understanding experiences that he could never have and will never have yeah there's a lot of post commentary about this like some really insane think pieces um lots of questions about misogyny and his kind of perverse eye towards the lesbianism that happens in this movie and i don't even like care to dignify it with an opinion it's like this all comes out of the emotional reality like this isn't something that you can just like pick apart with like little uh cultural calipers like you have to just um tune in with your heart and then all of a sudden everything makes so much sense and you see the grand narrative i do want to dignify those critiques because i think not enough people are and i want to i want to speak on this okay do it david lynch is um, never will has ever described himself as a feminist but he is like people are always constantly accusing him of misogyny but they don't realize that more than any woman or 
you know, male filmmaker on the scene, he is depicting the most realistic, sympathetic, like respectfully written women. And Mm -hmm. you think of Laura Palmer, who is so flawed and is it's so the show wants you to realize that she's flawed, but he loves her and he respects her and he understands her. And it's so obvious through the entire run of Twin Peaks how much he loves this character and like sees her as like a friend and like someone he understands. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's why maybe he is like actually the true feminist is because he unadulteratedly loves women. The way that he photographs them, the way that he lets their emotional realities unfold in these extremely arduous narratives so that even though they are often, like, sort of cast and realized with this uh, vagueness about them, the interior is always churning in this deep, visible way. And you can tell that he is so obsessed and fascinated with that process that I think that does make him, like, truly, like, a feminist in a way because he actually really beautifully cares about the interior of the female world instead of the exterior, which he also cares about. Yeah. And he also is the, the greatest ally the gay community will ever see in this movie. Because the thing is, is I think, you know, I have a lot of lesbian friends. I love and respect a lot of lesbians. And I think that they undersell themselves culturally as a community where they aren't Mm -hmm. as willing, they're more interested in translating and kind of appropriating culture that was really made for like gay men or like straight women towards their experiences than embracing their own stories. And if you are a lesbian and you're not holding this film up as like one of the greatest representations of that flavor of love, then you're wrong. Because at the end of the day, this movie is so beautifully tolerant and celebratory of the romance between these two women in the sense that they are just circumstantially gay. Never, and especially in the first half of the movie, like never is it in dialogue or writing ever said like, this is my first gay experience or like they don't even seem to recognize the fact that they're both women. They just love each other. No, no, it's totally oblivious. They just, and their love is so fascinating because they, they, to me, I think the reason that Betty, uh, Naomi Watts' Betty, loves Rita so much is because she sees the deep, impossible female archetype in her. She sees, like, this um, tragic, bleeding, lost, beautiful image of uh, the eternal woman in her and is so moved by that that she kind of engages in the same adoration practice that Lynch does. And the love that she expresses for them in that really touching sex scene, I've always found to be very hot, um, very enticing, and also very, like, you know, from the heart. Exactly. She does love her. Like, and I don't know that Naomi Watts is the greatest actress. I think she's really good in this, but I don't think she's a great actress. I think she's kind of bad. Yeah. I think that she's, like, not good in the ring. I think that she's pretty bad in funny games, but she is very good at being a bad actress for good directors who turn her badness into high art. Exactly. And... That's another topic that we will be circling back to very shortly is kind of like the bad <laughs> elements of this movie. 
But uh-huh. I do want to say, like, in the second half of the movie, the lesbianism has a little bit of, like, a more modern kind of, like, woke edge where it's, again, never said, but, like, more heavily implied that it's, like, a big deal to these two women um, right. in the real world, which is, you know, a clever turn on Lynch's idea because in obviously in Betty's delusional fantasy land it would not be a problem at all nobody would care and like and in the real world it's a little more nuanced and people bring their own you know past traumas to relationships and what have you um but even then it's never never is it spoken that this is like a secret or like homophobia seems to not exist in this world or if it does it exists elsewhere and it exists elsewhere so potently and like so beautifully that he doesn't need to bring it straight into the world he he doesn't he really does not look down on his audience at all he expects us to just know that that is a thing that exists and Mm -hmm. bring it to our interpretation without having to spell it out for us, without having to write it into the plot, the godforsaken plot. (laughs) The godforsaken plot. (laughs) It is actually beautiful, and it creates one of the purest romances in cinema. And I... Oh, it's so moving. And I want to talk about... I have an oomphy. Um, No, I don't think she's an oomphy, because I think I just follow her. (laughs) But I have a girl... The eternal oomphy, yeah. I have a girl on Twitter... Um, and this is a community actually of like film girlies, like gay film girlies love this movie for obvious reasons. But uh, yes, they sure do. They make um, fan fiction and like fan edits of these two women who we barely like see romantically involved together throughout like most of the movie. But there are like Taylor Swift fan cams of them like kissing and like cuddling <laughs> that like come up on my timeline. <laughs> And I think that's so touching and so beautiful that, like... Yeah, that it emerges out of all of this. You know, the fan cam can come out of this. I I think that is beautiful as well. Yeah, because I have very little faith in the LGBT community. Um, I have a little faith in their ability to recognize high art these days. But it is really cool to me to see gay women seeing themselves in something that depicts them so well and that like depicts their struggle mm-hmm. so well it's it's relieving it feels like a, you know sp- as i said i go to a women's college i spend a lot of time around um queer women you queer i hate that word but like <laughs> um but honestly i i love it's refreshing and exciting to see you know these women that I love this kind of depiction, expressing yeah. themselves through something that they deserve through something that's really healthy and like a good yeah. piece of work yeah I totally get this um I I also love that the there is still like a disgusting edge to it as well like it's not because you know, when I was on with thought topics last week we were both like you know longing for like the diarrhea like loose rectum fisting porn of fire island that needs to exist in a popular art mode and i honestly think that like the most nasty upsetting lesbian sex i've ever seen is in the second portion of this film where the the first half is revealed to kind of have been this imaginary uh fantasized dreamscape and we see them having unbearably awkward you know kind of um broken sex between them there's this long shot where it goes from this 
absolutely destitute apartment and then goes right over to um, Camila's uh, boobs that are just out and you feel this menace. Just, oh my god i can't get over it they are so sexy well, David i love Lynch, boobs if i had a, if i had <laughs> infinite money if i had infinite money i would just one photograph hey, yeah i would just i'd give david lynch i'd be like i want you to film me walking up and down a hallway like you have full you have full authority over what i wear how i do my makeup like just film how me. are her boobs so beautiful i can't stop thinking about them i love her tits i'm obsessed with them she, well she'd be looking very jiggle gel or jiggle jello, jello in, in them, them dresses, dresses. <laughs> it's, she looks cunt the entire time and, oh my god it's so sexy yeah and i think it's very important that you brought up like the gross edge of this because i can see how it's neglecting that but i think it's so important because it's so real in the same way that like uh-huh. the there's a very gross edge to the depiction of the trans woman Denise Bryson in Twin Peaks, but it's so real. And, and that's why you can tell he loves it so much and it's done with such a kindness and earnesty because he doesn't sugarcoat anything. There's no, like, and he especially does not sugarcoat the masturbation scene in this where it, it the first of these, which are many to come, it's a very popular theme in contemporary fiction of women violently jerking off and um him and michael haneke with the piano teacher are the only people i want to see doing violent jerk off scenes because what okay i want one human being to give me an experience of a time they masturbated and it was so nice and comforting and made them feel so good it doesn't exist girl this is not an experience (laughs) that exists it's always a little gross it's a little rushed it's a little like embarrassing this is something that David Lynch captures so perfectly where she's not just sitting and looking back on this nice romance she had. Like she is literally so angry and sweaty. She looks sweaty in this scene. Yeah. Oh my God. The photography of her face. I mean, Lynch is perfect at capturing women at their most beautiful. And also when he is photographing them as ugly sweaty dark bags under the face lines everywhere they are so enrapturing and fascinating because even though i'm like i mean it's the abjection joyson's arc there like the nastier it gets the deeper i go in and um definitely have felt exactly the same way during as uh, naomi watts's jerk off scene like less than 12 hours ago oh, you know it's real maybe nine girl um <laughs> maybe but, six who even yeah. knows at this point <laughs> but i also uh, it's a pivot like we were talking about like kind of like naomi wants like bad acting where there is david lynch and we were also talking about like showing his movies to people um you know i showed lost highway to this guy i've been seeing recently and he um the other night was reflecting on it and he was talking about how seamlessly David Lynch uses camp. And I agree because I think, you know, Sontag in her essay, Pointing the Term, talks a lot about how camp cannot be replicated by a talented eye. And I think that there is one truly traditionally talented artist on the market who can actually create genuine camp and it's David Lynch. Because obviously Mm -hmm. he's a talented writer and a talented director. Like we know this, like there are so many (laughs) moments, but he does incorporate very intentionally these terrible 
terrible elements in these movies that are brought to the table with such seriousness that it just works. And I want to talk about... I, I think about that all the time with The Return, when the first scene that, um, like, Cooper inhabits Dougie's body and, like, the Dougie mode is going on, and we have that, like, big black, like, porn star woman um, who is giving the performance of her life, which is the worst performance of all time, and it's so <laughs> human. And, I mean, that's the entire first bit of Naomi Watts, like, with her enormous fucking deer eyes as she is just, like, surveying the ecstasy of Hollywood, and it translates into this perfect fantasy. Like, you have it exactly There, right. There are two examples I want to bring up. One of them is very related to that. My favorite line in this whole movie, it's a sleeper. Not a lot of people remember it. But it's when she <laughs> is calling the police and um they ask her name and she puts the phone down so she doesn't have to tell them and then she turns to rita and she goes there was an accident like in that there was an accident like she's so serious and she like you can tell she's so excited and it's just glittering exciting like makes you want to get up out of your seat and strut camp and then there's the, the other example that i cannot get over it's uh, Laura Herring's terrible wig. That awful wig that she puts oh on when they go God. to the theater. That blonde wig where, like, it's kind of, it's a very, um, it's a moment of true badness in the movie where it's very on-the-nose symbolism of, like, Betty turning this woman she loves into herself by, like, cutting a wig that looks like hers. That part I'm not as interested in. I'm just interested in the fact that the wig does not sit on Laura Herring's head at all. <laughs> it is floating above her head. Like the lace is so obvious. It's oh my god, hair. It's so fucking busted. I'm obs- <laughs> I am equally obsessed with that wig. I will never get over it. And when I was seeing it, I was bootsing. I was fucking bootsing. I'm like, yes, you put on the worst wig of all time. Like, honey, I get it. That's me getting fucking chopped at the ball. It on literally Saturday. is. And uh, it's also really crucial that in that scene. She's supposed to have Russ to get dressed to like go chase this, um, you know, club that she saw in her dream. Yet she's wearing heels, a full face of makeup and a halter top and this terrible wig. Like she's just messy boots. Like literally but getting- you know, like white girls, like they fucking love to put on a wig to go to a party. They, I'm sure I you've encountered this before. I've done everyone, it. Everyone has to put on wigs. Everyone should My put on wigs. Halloween costume this year, I dressed, I had two Halloween costumes. It was very Mulholland Drive. I did two characters that are like related <laughs> to each other. Um, uh-huh. The first one was Jackie Kennedy. The second one was Audrey Horn. And so in Were you my, splattered with blood? Yes, the... yeah. Yeah, I was a brain matter girl. I was, and I was crying too. I like ran my mascara with eye drops so I could be like, you know, in having a little moment. And I was wearing this cheap black plastic wig and uh-huh. just boots like strutting through the hallways, strutting to the bus stop, like bootsing, because it's so important. It's so good for the soul to put on a bad wig. It's so oh, crucial. A horrible wig is the most important thing in the world. It is crucial because nothing does David Lynch. Nothing is quite Sky Ferrera enough. Nothing is as like borderline breaking reality. Uh, immediately forcing you in this postmodern act of violence to make you question the fabric of the world as when somebody shows up in a bad wig. And that's why I have been relying on a single $25 wig, my little blonde bob, my best girl, because she has been came in 
She, I have fallen over in her. She has been ripped apart and washed twice only, ever. And that that wig that you can literally like, grab onto and bend in a certain direction and it will stay that way, that is the fantasy. And you know what? People on the evil forums on like 4chan compare you to Dasha, so it works. Like it, there's something, That's right. <laughs> it's something so legendary about it. And there are other bad moments in this film. Um, I think, I mean, we can't, we have to do the requisite uh, chat about the jump scare scene. Um, okay, let me pee before we do it. Okay. I have to expel my bodily fluids before we can even discuss yeah, that. Yeah, you have to go. Okay. <laughs> Give me two seconds. We're back. Okay, I didn't wash my hands or anything. I just, like, peed and went. <laughs> Gorgeous. <laughs> because this scene is so important to me because it also carries... I, I've heard this theorized to be a depiction of gay people. I always assume that they were, like, co-workers because I'm straight and, like, oblivious. But, I like, thought they were co-workers, too. Yeah, I was... Because they're wearing suits. I don't know, girl. But at the diner, there are these two, there are these two fellas, and they are really pushing their hardest to give a performance i do think the guy who has the dream um he was in a really bad kind of like tv soap opera called like once upon a time about fairy tales that i used to watch with my mom in that show they filmed that in oregon yeah they did and i went on a trip to rural oregon um in middle school and i like went to see like the town that they filmed it in girl so it, boots. yeah boots um but i was obsessed with the show and he appears as like a pivotal character um in it and gives a bad performance kind of requisite to the show but in this i think he actually does a pretty like passable serviceable job um oh yeah it, i mean it's the the return porn star like black girl actress for me or acting for me like i i really yeah, yeah. It, but he is able weird. to he's able to telegram like a lot of emotion, which I appreciate. Um, uh-huh. But the other guy is just not good. And then they're walking out, and this is key because I think the jump scare. I'm gonna you know make an I'm so popular first and be the first person to re- reference Five Nights at Freddy's on this show. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> this trash for the for the girls at home who don't know this trash video game that's like a horror game built entirely around jump scares that features no other horror um that is a pivotal piece of art for my generation like the, like people my age I, I was in like fifth grade when this came out i think i played the first one i never played it again it, it then goes off into this like psychedelic lore story where they sort of kind of explain it despite the fact that it, the whole story hinges around you not knowing what's happening. So it, it's a fascinating work um, that deserves more time than this. 
but it um, brought the jump scare into the parlance once again, and jump scares started to appear really heavily in film and video games after that. Um, and that was kind of its one big contribution to the culture. But I think this is a fascinating scene because it does something that Five Nights at Freddy's or the post Five Nights at Freddy's like modern revival of the jump scare never do, which is it spoils the whole thing for you. When he's telling the story of the dream and then you start to see that the dream is being replicated, you know exactly what's gonna happen. You know you're going to experience this, which ruins the fun of a jump scare, but somehow it makes it so much scarier. So yeah, no, I mean, the first time I watched this and I hated the movie, I felt furious about this scene because as you said, they specifically script out what is going to happen and that horrific silence and the building up orchestration in this like bright sunny LA I found it to be really cruel to do something like that I was like pissed off about it and re-watching it most recently it still startles me and it is this really perfect I, I think it's a really beautiful moment especially for the beginning it, it's quite early on in the film it's like basically the first scene when we're away from Rita and Betty if I recall correctly yes and and it's this wonderful, like, foreboding shadow as to what's going to happen when uh, you are immediately faced with L.A.'s worst nightmare, homeless people in drag. Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, I found this out the other day, but um, the person who plays that, like, dumpster monster is a woman. It's a woman. Yes. yes. I found this out as well recently. I thought it was a man always. Um, but I am fascinated by this scene partially because you know you said it all I can't speak to like it's very scary and I think because it does script out and like spoil it for you even on your first watch it doesn't lose its scariness because like knowing mm -hmm. what's gonna happen like doesn't ruin it um and so in that way it's like a mastery of both writing and direction because it um solves the problem of the jump scare but it also has this fascinating formal quality of um, the color grading. The color grading in this movie is deeply inspiring to me, not to be this girl, but as an artist. Be this um, girl. Yeah, be her. As, as an artist, I, one of the iconic quotes about this movie is from like a critic at the time said that the colors popped like a whore's lip gloss. Um, Love it. Yeah, and it, they do. And um, and I tried to translate this into my little painting. I tried to translate this into everything. But the colors in this scene are particularly fascinating because they capture a really underrepresented quality of Los Angeles, just that it's a very gray place. And I think people don't think of this. They think of it as sunny and bright and colorful and glittering. And it is that. But I think all of those colors mashed together into this slimy sort of overwhelming pixelated grayness this like crude kind of like washed out gray and beige and like you know hints of neon that you realize once you start spending enough time there is kind of the main thing that you're confronted with when I think of LA which is a place that I actually have spent a significant amount of time because I have family there I think of driving on a highway for like yeah. extended periods of time. 
and being met with these constant repetitious like beige strip mall buildings with bright neon signs and it all sort of fades together into this taupe slab and this scene and as well as the scene where they're out on the street with the like hooker girl with her nipples out like smoking cigarettes like the two hitmen they're looking mm-hmm. for Rita this is like kind of an under talked about scene but like all of these scenes blend together and create exactly what it's like to spend LA in spend time in LA when you're not a tourist um, no I felt exactly the same way like especially with um like the Justin Thoreau scene when he is like beating up on the car and stuff like um when I went to downtown LA as a you know preteen to go to an anime convention with my um one of my good friends Sky I was very disturbed because we were staying on the outskirts of the city and then going to downtown for this like convention or whatever and like you said like this endless like kind of like Mexican inspired architecture like as interpreted by strip malls plus like the slight suggestions of a glimmering star object that can be seen from the titular Mulholland Drive it is a very like transient American image like this like whole blandness like the taupe beige um that's only like kind of um like broken up by that view of the city from once you're removed by it and doing the Kanye West uh 30 hours drive on Mulholland Drive like that is the only time that it you know relates its grandness into reality and LA has this fascinating quality of the way the city is planned and also the way it works um it feels like America breaking down It, it feels like the end like we've reached the end we've gone from coast to coast and it finally you know we've reached the ocean because LA is on the ocean and it feels as though all of the conventions of city planning that is known like the America is known for like suburbs and urban sprawl and these sort of gray splotches on the earth start to stack up on each other and Mm -hmm. and just it's creating it's like a video game glitching out and just spawning endless like entities like it, it feels like highways stacked on strip malls stacked on suburban houses stacked on luxury cars stacked on McDonald's stacked on like you know actresses Stacked on homeless people. Yeah, stacked (laughs) on homeless people. And it's, you know, this massive, unwieldy tangle. It's a tangle. It feels like a bunch of computer wires, like, tangled up. And when you look down on the city from the hills, it's something so beautiful and so haunting and shocking. And Lana Del Rey knows this. Kanye West knows this. And David Lynch definitely knows this. Because there, it's no coincidence that, like, the first time you really see the city in the film is Rita, like, stumbling out of her car onto the, like, glittering, tangled city below her. Right. Oh, my God. As she, like, descends into the forest. I was thinking a lot about Nicholas Winding reference the Neon Demon during this as well, because it's one of the other few representations of L.A. I find really compelling, but... I just love that Lynch has such a piercing understanding of the city and it really creates this gorgeous theatrical staging for like what's going on here. And I think like Sky Ferreira, despite being a New York gal herself, like Nighttime My Time really does have kind of an LA big sky glamour to it that feels uh, torn down to earth by the gross synths and like 
sponged out guitar music like that also very much has the same kind of textural sensation to me but something I I really want to think about with Mulholland Drive is that even though this movie kind of has like that pessimistic like disgusting like uh secretly there's like drug addicts and homeless people spinning about beneath the uh, veneer glamour. I think this movie is deeply optimistic and is actually a very like beautiful and sublime pageant of like what our country can do. You're so right. And I also want to talk about this and it's kind of gesturing at the theme that I was talking about with the title track of Nighttime My Time mm-hmm. almost feeling poppy and celebratory celebratory why am i british celebratory what's the word celebratory, celebratory. I that either <laughs> yeah in at the very end where it, there's something about this film even though it ends in a suicide and it loops constantly in its storytelling so that it feels like this goes on and on forever it is a beautiful and exciting story that gives us like so much happiness especially around the Mm. middle of the film when things are going really well for our girls and they're like you know in love and figuring out what happened to Rita and things are going well in Betty's acting career you know it does loop and it does end in tragedy but at the end of the day this film is so exciting and comforting because it is it holds that tragedy so dear to it and rejects it. It truly feels like a rejection in the same way that like Nighttime My Time feels like a a track that really rejects both the pop elements of the record and the sort of tragic emotionality. Um, And it enters a void where neither exists. Um, And you can flow endlessly. Yeah. It, it enters the Shin Megami Tensei realm. Like, it literally becomes Shin Megami Tensei where the old world and the futurist dream of a new world are both deleted and you must forge forth on your own merits alone to find something out of all of this cultural detritus and your own emotional sexuality and everything. You have to break from it completely and will yourself forward. Um, and you're mentioning, like, holding that tragedy dear. I so feel that because the scene of Naomi Watts doing that extraordinary performance the best performance of her entire life is she auditions for a film uh, with an older actor Um, they get so physically close I was almost moved to tears Um, I wasn't drunk when we were watching so I didn't cry that time but we weren't watching it in a theater because if I'm in a theater I will cry but seeing that with my boyfriend and just sitting there for that extremely long bit of them just doing a scene and seeing what she was capable of emotionally convincing like with her little dumb dream I found that to be very touching yeah and the part of it that really touches me and like makes me cry a little bit is how all that room when she's acting like the mise-en-scene is clever the room is full of people there's like a random mm-hmm. secretary who looks like a transgender Zoe Deschanel. Love her. There's like <laughs> this le- like lesbian casting director and like um, a bunch of older men and like the director of the film is sitting there and they are all so unmoved by it and like unshocked, um, including the other actor. And that's the most beautiful part because you understand that these people exist in the Shin Megami Tensei world where they see this all the time. 
they recognized from the start that he's potential when she came in and mm-hmm. they were excited and shocked and they cheered when she left. But at the end of the day, there's nothing, they don't seem surprised. They just, oh, it's, I so get it. It's so beautiful. It's, you know, just dazzling and exciting. And I, I wish there were more films like this. I mean, he has done some other, he did Inland Empire after this, which has like a similar quality and is so different, mm-hmm. but has such so much of its own merits. But like, it, it's exactly what I think our culture needs right now is just this understanding of the good and this like rejection of pessimism and this understanding that like, yeah, something beautiful just happened and it's going to happen again, girl. Oh, absolutely. I feel like that scene in particular, like, really cements it for me. And that kind of, like, nonchalance, um, like, quiet, like, proceduralism about it. I think that's, like, where you see that, like, Lynch, like, despite having his career molested over and over again by the system, um, like, with his problems with the final cut on Dune, um, with the fact he hasn't been able to produce some of his best scripts, um, constant lack of funding. He has faced so much hardship in the cultural circulation of his art, and yet the kind of, like, boring, like, boardroom Shin Godzilla take on that extremely moving Naomi Watts performance as viewed by the producers is, like, this beautiful, like, finger on the pulse of, like, what's happening in Hollywood, and that this this kind of amazing, sublime, moving performance is happening every day. Um... The other scene that we have to talk about before we can wrap any of this up is the theater scene, Silencio. Um, oh all, my god! I love the Spanish in this movie. I, um, as a as a bilingual girl, <laughs> um, do you speak Spanish? I speak struggle Spanish. Um, I'm dyslexic, okay. <laughs> so I went to like a school for dyslexia where they taught us reading at like a really intensive scale so I'm a very like high functioning reader and writer in English um and I have written a lot of really good things I have read a lot of really highfalutin books um I do still struggle to learn foreign languages though and Uh so my Spanish is like really disjointed in that like I have all of these big things to share in English that I'm trying to translate very uh, poorly into Spanish. Um, And I like, on a personal scale, seeing that exact experience in this film, where the Spanish here is so cutting and concise, where one word, silencio, like silence, is just means so much. And you can tell Hell, if it were in English, he would have said like a whole poem, like fire walk with me, but he did not. He said one word. He just jams it into Spanish and says one word. No, I bond that silencio. Like it is incredibly poetic and beautiful. And this scene carries with it. It's my favorite scene, I would say, but it also carries with it my least favorite element of the movie, which is the woman with the blue wig. I don't like, I don't care for this in any way. I, don't I love her. I just love a wig and some dumb woman looking artsy. I love her <laughs> I too. I love her too if for those reasons. 
But I think that the film would have been more effective had it ended on just like the the announcer guy saying no I Bonda again or like Silencio. I don't yeah, love I get the, like, it. wig woman. And I like the um, woman who sings a lot more than wig woman. Yes, that's um Rebecca Del Rio. She she's a frequent collaborator. She appears Bianca in, like, Del the Rio. Bianca, yeah. Oh, <laughs> if that was a drag queen, if that was a drag okay. queen. Okay. Seriously, I had the same vision. Once again, recasting myself in another art movie. I want to play her. <laughs> I think that like David Lynch has an interesting relationship to drag because every like cisgender woman in all of his movies, they're like they are drag queens. Like there's all this mm-hmm. discourse over like can biological women do drag queen or do drag be drag queens? If and, David like, Lynch is directing, absolutely. Yes. No, because what is Laura Herring if not a drag queen? Like she looks like. It, like she's in drag. she's wearing a fucking wig and a breastplate basically yes and then these two just sexy incredibly transcendently beautiful women cuddled up on each other shaking watching this other weeping <laughs> yeah watching this other woman sing a song in spanish that's like a pre-recorded tape it is impactful partially because if you're a plot person this really is the thesis of the movie and explains a lot of what's going on and you start to catch it but it's on a spiritual level is just a feast for the eyes and the ears it's incredible you know it totally is and i mean i do even love the plot thesis of this moment it's all an illusion i mean it feels so satisfying to me, especially before it's a kind of revealed to be a twist or whatever, because the idea that even if the beginning of the movie had all been true, that this fantasy of Hollywood and this um, pursuit of fame had it all been true, I it's all an illusion. And that suggestion is very like close to my own kind of Schopenhauer understanding of things that this reality we're all touching on is a divine summation of everybody's horniness and our emotional reaction to things and everything before us is just this big emotional elbowing of piling reactions upon reactions and I feel like Lynch just gets that and so this extremely aching sublime tragic transcendental every I'm so popular adjective scene of them weeping as it's revealed to be a boots for your life lip sync is just the moment honestly I think it's interesting you brought up Schopenhauer. I don't know if Lynch has read Schopenhauer. He probably has not. But, um, you know, Schopenhauer believed that all art was imitation of the will except for music. And that music was true, um, uh, like, just channeling of this intense spiritual will to power that he's always talking about in his writings. Mm -hmm. And I think Lynch is very clever to make sure just keep beating into us that this is a recording this is a replication like they are seeing no eye bond like it is a tape girl and they are this singing being an illusion is something that's so simple and so minimal in its writing I can't imagine he spent a bunch of time writing this out or thinking this out but it says so much. It's something that you can just keep mulling over and thinking about over and over and over again. I just, I only want to think about it. It's so satisfying. I don't know. It feels like this warm, plush, pink sensation to just submit to the fact that this is all a fucking tape. Like, 
it, it could be easy to interpret it in this really, like, black-pilled, antagonistic, like, you know, negative way where, oh, everything's fake. It's all an illusion. Film is just flashing images and it means nothing at all. Um, but that's not true. It is all an illusion. It's all a tape. It's all a replication. It's Kyrie Pamu Pamu world fabrication. And it is beautiful because of it. It is. And it inspires the striking and the weeping despite being fake and the big boobs and the, and the big boobs the and big, the wigs huge boobs <laughs> and the terrible wig and the full face of makeup like i love david the way david lynch has his starlets in makeup like especially the second half of the movie laura herring's like like heavy grease paint smoky eye and like the red lipstick and the dark lip liner there's just something so plush and atmospheric and comfortable. It's like one of those kind of like like a bed in a cheap hotel that is so fake and so like contrived and you know a million of them exist and that some couples had sex in it before it before you but there's something so comfortable about it and you just like drift to sleep and it's just the most beautiful feeling. Absolutely. Um Usually, uh, I like to ask my guests first what they want to take away from this week's art in the recreation of the universe under the fascist I'm so popular Shin Megami Tensei, you know, ritual. But this time, I want to say that I 100% believe in the dream of Betty. I believe in the dream of Diane. I believe in this idea that you can dream up this perfect fantasy world and you can live in a complete denial of reality and make it into one of the most moving and beautiful transcendental imaginations of the world possible full of breastplates bad wigs jump scares glamour flashing lights beautiful interpretations of ugly architecture i just really 100% connect with that. And as with Sky Ferreira, I believe that the most disastrous and ugly of your feelings can also be reinterpreted and deployed that way. And so no matter how drunk I get on podcasts or like what calamities like befall me, it's all for that ultimate mission. It, exactly. It is me in my basement like knees and shoulders hurting, like kneeling over the floor to like paint a picture. It's me, you know, getting all dressed up for a party that flops. It's designing your own drinking game to your favorite movie. It is, you can create the world. You can fabricate the world to your will and you just have to do it. You have to believe in yourself and believe in your own dream. And that's what this movie and this album teach us is just that like, you can't, I, I mean, Polya's most reproduced quote is that no, or I think the phrase is can't kills creativity. And mm. this is exactly the thesis of both of these things. You can mix shoegaze and 80s pop and 2014 indie, and you can, you know, be just as moved by a tape as you are a real performance. And it is up to you to just create a new world and to power through the muck and the mire of existence. It's exactly right. 
you don't have to be miserable. All you have to do is learn how to interpret these wretched things going on, going on around us. I mean, climate change is actually beginning to scare me. Like I'm like I'm like getting really hot and sweaty, and my emotions are spiraling out of control. And there's like nothing I can like do about any of it except look back at it with a glimmering eye and see it as my Mulholland Drive pursuit to my ultimate destiny as a goddess of fame on the world stage.